Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 173. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast wouldn't exist without the support of its listeners. If you'd like to become a member, please go to patreon.com slash therapy chat. By making a $1 per month donation, you can help Therapy Chat keep going over the long haul. Thank you for your support. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I'm going to be talking with someone about a topic that is uncomfortable for most of us especially in U.S. culture and many Western cultures, we're talking about the topic of grief, which is something that in Western cultures, typically we don't like thinking about. We don't like talking about it. And really it's death that we don't want to think about or talk about. Even though death is just as much a part of life as birth and everything that happens in between, somehow we do everything we can to avoid it and avoid thinking about it. And then when it happens, we feel like it's not fair. This shouldn't have happened. And, you know, our perspective on death is one of wanting to resist against it at all costs. And of course, survival is necessary for our species. We have to survive to continue to reproduce or we will no longer exist as a species. So there's a very good reason for being focused on staying alive as much as we can. But since death is an inevitable part of our lives, it makes sense that we need to think about it and talk about it. My guest is someone who brings a really unique perspective. Isabel Stenzel Burns, LCSW, MPH, is a licensed clinical social worker and bereavement counselor at Mission Hospice and Home Care in California, where she counsels children, teens, and adults who have lost a loved one. She also leads writing through loss groups for those who are grieving and other support groups. Isabel has experienced significant losses of her own and has lived with serious illness all her life. 
which is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk with her, because I think it's a very interesting perspective as one who has lived with a chronic illness that was terminal her whole life. Death has been kind of in her awareness much more so than most people. And now, and she has her own experiences of grief, and now she works with people who are grieving. So I think she's got an interesting perspective from both sides of the grief as a, as a therapist and as someone who has experienced a lot of grief. As an author, documentarian, patient advocate, and public speaker, Isabel has lectured around the country on topics such as living well with illness, grief and loss, end-of-life issues, and organ donation, including a TEDx Stanford talk in 2014. So this conversation may sound like it's going to be depressing. I didn't find it to be depressing at all to have our conversation, but it was very poignant and meaningful. And I was very moved by what we talked about. And you may find the same thing to be true for yourself. Let's just go ahead and dive right into my conversation with Isabel Stenzel Burns. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I am so honored to be speaking with someone who has a very important perspective to share about subjects that we often don't talk about grief and loss, bereavement, anticipatory grief, hospice care. My guest today is Isabel Stencil Burns. Isabel, thanks so much for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. It's a great honor to be here, Laura. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy that we made it work and that you were able to come. And just as we've been talking before we even started with the formal part of our interview, I've just been struck by, you know, just how meaningful and powerful the work that you're doing is. So I can't wait for our audience to hear us discussing it. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. So before we really dive into our conversation, will you just take a moment to introduce yourself and tell our audience about who you are and what you do? So I am a licensed clinical social worker in California. I work at Mission Hospice and Home Care in San Mateo between San Francisco and San Jose. I am a bereavement coordinator at um, the hospice. So I predominantly offer grief counseling on an individual basis to clients as well as family counseling. And um, we offer a number of grief support groups. So those are my main roles here. I also do a lot of community education. And I'll just start with where I, how I landed here. Perfect. I actually, when I was young, I wanted to be a park ranger <laughs> because I love the outdoors. I love nature. But I was born with an illness with my twin sister, An- Annabelle, and uh, cystic fibrosis. And so we were diagnosed in back in 1972 uh, when we were born. And throughout my life, I did quite a bit of medical treatments. And um, my parents uh, were told that we wouldn't live to be more than about 10 years of age. So we grew up with a lot of illness and death and um, anxiety and really had to navigate how to try to live as normal a life as possible in the midst of multiple medications, treatments, and hospitalizations. 
What helped me the most was being part of a community of children with cystic fibrosis by going to camp and later being involved in uh, various nonprofit organizations. And inevitably, when you're part of an illness community, I experienced a number of losses of friends, of peers, of children that were younger than me and adults who were older than me. And I was really fascinated and drawn to living parents. There was some connection that I felt for them. And probably there was some unconscious need for me to process their grief or because I anticipated my own. But also just it, it was it was really just fascinating to see how they coped with the death of a child. How did they s- remember their child? How did they start living again and restart their lives? How did they honor their child and really find ways to continue to feel connected to their child? So that, that kind of experience started when I was about um, 17, being drawn to parents of my peers who had died. And lo and behold, I was in the hospital many times, and it was my social worker in the hospital that introduced me to this work, and she was really an incredible mentor and talk about life and death and um, anxieties and so on. I feel so blessed to have had, you know, a, a close relationship with my medical social worker through the years. So first, my mother went to social work school and then um, started working at the same hospital. And then eventually, after my college, I went to um, Berkeley for my social work degree, um, got a um, public health degree as well. And because of my progressive illness, I um, basically worked for about three years. And then I became too sick to work. So that was a time of tremendous grief for for me. Um, Actually, my whole life, I was struggling with wanting to be normal and pushing myself, sometimes to the extreme, to be able to accomplish what my peers accomplished. The blessing of this kind of, and I know my story is not unique. Most people who end up doing this work come from backgrounds and histories that inform how they cope with challenge and then, you know, uh, get interested in helping others to find ways to cope with challenges. So I just say that because I'm mindful of our audience and all the stories out there of how people coped and what led them to become uh, therapists. So I, I was enduring the realization that no matter how many treatments I did, no matter how compliant I was with my nutrition and my exercise and sleep and uh, chest physical therapy and medications, I still had a progressive and fatal disease. So uh, my grief process probably started when I was um, six years old, when I was in the hospital, there was fibrosis in the room down the hall. And the next one day, her bed was empty, and um, the nurse explained to us that she had gone to heaven. And it was a realization: okay, I am here temporarily. I will, I will likely die. Um, I didn't say likely back then. I said I will die. I will die before my peers, my healthy peers. So I really need to live the best life I can live. And I was six years old when I came to that realization. That, Gosh, what a what a realization for a child. Yeah. 
Yeah, that I, but it was actually, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm overly positive, but I did learn to cope in, in positive ways. But it was an opportunity and actually a gift for me to recognize, okay, I have no control over this disease. I, I do have some control because of the adherence. And psychologically, I have a tremendous amount of control. I can, you know, embrace life, what's given to me. I can love the people around me at a, at a very young age. Mm. I can express myself and learn to, you know, learn to make a, an emotional impact initially and further down to make a, an actual practical impact in the career that I chose. So throughout all of this, I lost um, my best friend when I was 19 and then a number of other friends through the years. And the reason I came to Mission Hospice was because both my sister and I received double lung transplants, and uh, that's that's why I'm still here. And after 13 years of her transplants, my sister unfortunately developed cancer, and she was a patient at Mission Hospice and uh, went through three weeks of hospice. Really just transformative. The doctor here spent three hours with her, and we'd never, ever in our whole medical life have had that much time with the doctor. Mm -hmm. The focus on the psychosocial, spiritual, and physical needs were um, something we'd never experienced before. And um, despite a tragic illness, my sister died a peaceful death surrounded by friends and comfort and love. So it was, a, it was a, if it had to be a death, it was a positive experience. It was a good death. And a number of months later, the medical director let me know about a job opening here. So my heart has always been in bereavement. I was a bereavement counselor at the time of my sister's death. And predominantly what we, what we do is individual counseling, but we also do community counseling as well for people who've lost a loved one um, suddenly or tragically or um, maybe somewhere else outside of this region and have found us for support. Wonderful. Oh, gosh, what an important. I mean, I was telling you before, uh, before we started recording that, you know, hospice in my life has was invaluable when someone I loved was dying. And, you know, it's, it's such a it's, it's different from anything else that, that we have, like, mm -hmm. in, in our culture, I think that, you know, it approaches everything with a different perspective, it approaches the end of life process with a different perspective from our usual medical perspective. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's just so for the people who both for the person who's dying, but also for the people who love them, it's just, it's precious. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And, and just to re reiterate what you said, I think um, we live in a de death-defying culture, and finally, there is a place where we accept that death is a natural part of life, and that all of us, whether we're 95 years old or sometimes 30 years old, we will die. And to be able to surrender to that and also let go of that valiant fight um, which our medical system really promotes, you know, try this drug, try this drug, try this chemo. What about this radiation? What about this surgery? The fight that can go on until a person has no quality of life. Finally, when patients come to hospice, 
obviously not not willingly. Nobody wants to come to this stage of their illness of surrender. I've had patients tell me, couldn't be happier in my life because the sense of new peace is discovered that yeah. I, I, my time is limited, but I can choose what I want to do with it. No more trips to the ER, no more infusions. I get to just be with family and friends. Yeah. Well, and I, I don't want to skip over just thanking you for sharing your own experience because it was, to me, for me, that was very poignant to hear. And I just want to honor that you shared that with Thank us because you. that's precious too. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a humble person, but I also recognize by going to conferences and talking to many grief counselors that many, many people who do grief counseling have had a loss of their own. Why I became a grief counselor, of course, is informed by my own struggle against um, trying not to die and fighting death and actually coming to a place. And if you don't mind me sharing a little more, no, um, where I declined and um, basically went into respiratory failure, um, saw the white light, had a profound near-death experience, and then went unconscious. And so I was put on a ventilator. I was on the list waiting for a transplant. And a couple of days later, I woke up with um, someone else's lungs inside of me. So um, when, when I talk to clients and patients about death, I obviously do not reveal my personal story. But deep inside of me, I have an awareness of the physical struggle of how the emotions and um, emotions set aside at the end of life because of the physical struggle. And um, there's just a, a comfort and familiarity that I have um, in this work that I'm actually really grateful for. It's like this work found me <laughs> and uh, everything I've been through, all of the challenges, the grief, the hardships, the loss, the defiance against this disease, um, it all kind of has meaning and um, makes sense that I'm doing this, this work. I'm really grateful. Therapist, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy Notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used Therapy Notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend Therapy Notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code CHAT to get two free months. When you shared how you had that realization when you were six about, I'm here for a short time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kind of like, what am I going to make of it? that's so profound. You know, that's kind of like a spiritual realization that most people, you know, it's, it's true of all of us. We're here for a 
certain amount of time. We just don't know how long. And so mm-hmm. for a child to be able to, and maybe it, maybe it was through guidance and mentorship and maybe what your parents were able to help you understand, or maybe it was just something that your own child's wisdom really came up with yourself. But that's a hard thing for anybody to, to grasp at any age. And for a child to have that awareness is, it's like painful to hear, but it's also beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm speaking for myself. I don't know the experience of other children, obviously, but that I had the capacity inside of me to, to know and to understand that I happened to that girl down the hall for me. Well, then it's going to happen to me. So how do I want to live my life? And I also want to just mention that uh, my parents were amazing. They did so much for my sister and I and my brother to survive uh, as a family. But it was really the nurses and the respiratory therapists and the doctors and the social workers at the hospital who raised me Mm. (laughs) because they, they had enough distance that they could ask are you afraid of dying? Let me give you this book, Getting to Know God. You know, one of the nurses gave me that when I was 12. Mm. And and they had sort of the courage and the authenticity to approach me as a, as a young sick kid and really just allow me to talk. I don't think I would have been able to gain the personal awareness and comfort with death and dying and grief if I hadn't had those companions along the way to guide me. So that's just my little shout out to all the healthcare providers out there, whether they're listening or not. <laughs> You're sending it out to the universe. Yes. I think I think that you're really making me realize that, I mean, I know this, but it, I want to say it explicitly that healthcare providers who take care of people when they're sick and dying or when they're sick and they're not expected to die, but, you know, healthcare providers who do direct care with people mm-hmm. see so much that the rest of us don't see about life and death. And, yeah. you know, and they really do have to keep it to themselves, just like us as therapists having to witness so much pain yeah. that people experience and we just carry it and hold it. And we know, but that's a, that's a really sacred honor to, be with people in those those times when they're their most vulnerable, they're their most sick, helpless, dying, alone, you know, all of those experiences that can be so challenging for people. Mm-hmm. And the people who walk alongside with them in that experience are really important, you know, yes, really. Yes. And, and that does. Thank you for acknowledging that. It does highlight there is an intimacy, a profound intimacy with people who um, are at our bedside and watching us suffer. Um, there was one respiratory therapist in particular who really tried to keep me alive before I went into respiratory fa- um, failure. And and he knew he had to do my treatments. I protested them, be tired. And and then he went, he went, you know, he was off for a couple of days and he came back and I was alive with new lungs. And he came to me and he just cried and cried. And I was so touched. 
I thought, I'm just one of many patients, but he had developed kind of, um, this is kind of a cold word, but an investment in my survival because he was taking care of me and had taken care of me actually for years when I was in and out of the hospital. So there's the intimacy and sometimes we have to be mindful that um, that can create some unhealthy boundaries because I've had parents of my friends who've died and after the funeral, you know, sometimes healthcare providers come and sometimes they don't. And one parent in particular was so angry. She said, I, you know, they treated me, my daughter, just another. And I kind of said to her, well, she was, she was one of many patients. And so we cross boundaries and it's kind of notorious in the cystic fibrosis community of thinking of our providers as our friends. Mm. But just have to be careful with that because the expectations can change and can be potentially, you know, leading to disappointment. That's a good perspective. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. So Isabel, let's shift gears a little and, and see if we can talk about your work with grief. You know, your personal experience of grief certainly informs your work, but as you are sharing with those who are listening. I mean, some in the audience are therapists and some may be other types of helping professionals. And then many people are, you know, everyone will experience grief at some point. So, you know, many who are listening are people who don't work in this profession, but, you know, they want to understand more about themselves and life. And what would you want people to know about grief and, and your work with grief? Right. Yeah, there's so much. I think first and foremost, I want to acknowledge just my own experience in graduate school. I did not have a lot of training in grief and grief and loss. I had none. Yeah. And most of my colleagues and peers and um, even talking to professors at social work schools, like there, this is still the case. There's very little training on grief and loss, even though grief and loss is such a um, omnipresent theme, whether in therapy or whether in medical social work or child protective services, it's a part of our career, this, this profession. So most of my, my education and working here and started reading um, William Morden and Therese Rando and um, Ken Doka and all of these prominent um, people in the grief, grief and loss world. But it was sitting with clients that is my greatest education. And um, to, to kind of the blessing, I think, in this work is that grief and loss is a normal and natural experience. We do not diagnose. We do not pathologize. We really most of my work is around normalizing and validating a person's experience and sitting in front of them nonjudgmentally and compassionately witnessing their story. Um, rather than being a storyteller, we are, I I don't know what the opposite of a storyteller is. We are story recipients and we soak in the stories. You know, sometimes people need to tell the story, uh, actually not sometimes, many times people need to tell the story. What do they see? It's sort of a way of processing something very traumatic, right? Absolutely. Um, How did the person sound? Because most of us aren't familiar with with death. We don't have it happening in our kitchen or our, our, our grandparents aren't dying in the bedroom next door anymore like it was back in the day when we lived in a farmhouse or something like that. 
So we're not exposed to death. So when it does happen to the closest um, person in our life, it is incredibly difficult. So many, most of my clients have never experienced such intense emotions. They feel like they're going crazy. Um, They've never had such intense physiological distress, like not being able to sleep and not being able to eat and feeling tension and feeling literal physical pain because their loved one has died and is not here. So what a break in attachment looks like, what it means, what it, how we, how we move through that um, and integrate that loss. And, you know, if I could sum up grief counseling in one word, it would be the word allow because so many people, you know, receive messages perhaps from our society or the media that grief starts and then it needs to stop and it needs to stop soon uh, within three days because that's all the bereavement. Three days. Yeah. Yeah. Got three days for that. Right. Three days of bereavement. And and if not three days, it should stop in three months or at most six months. I've even had clients saying, you know, I want to be better by March. And and so I have to kind of gently explore that, but also validate that, you know, sometimes we can't control this process and to lose a child or to lose your parent. You have a new, new kind of, you know, there was the chapter before when you were with them and then the chapter of where you're not with them. And um, what we also do is help them not judge themselves. Um, people are pretty harsh to themselves, as you know, in, in therapy. Mm-hmm. They set high expectations for themselves to be able to be more functional, to be able to be more at peace with what is a a significant um, break in attachment. And so, you know, I I do a lot of education around what that means um, to lose, to experience such loss of security and safety because their close person is no longer here. Many times in grief counseling, we review the relationship. What was it like? There's a myth that people that go to grief counseling love their love their person's whole relationship and all is well and how devastated they are that they're gone. But we try to review the full relationship, the good parts of the person and the challenging parts and what they're grieving that they're missing and what they might even be glad they don't have to deal with anymore, even if it might be the trips to the ER or the suffering. And then, you know, I think my my job, just like any counselor, any therapist, is to kind of help a client establish confidence um, little by little. So I've, you know, like like the little old lady who tells me, guess what? I, I drove across the bridge today because her husband always drove her across the bridge. And for the first time, she did it. So um, and it, and it extends beyond that. You know, I made a new friend or. I cooked myself a meal and I ate it and I wasn't in a puddle of tears. So helping gradually um, restart their lives again and and gain more confidence in who they are and who, what they're capable of. Yeah, I, I you know, what you're saying resonates so much for me in terms of people wanting to return to their normal functioning and thinking that they're supposed to and other people outside in their lives, telling them that they are, you know, taking too long to heal, mm-hmm. you know, and that's certainly a common theme for, you know, my clients mostly have 
complex trauma. And there are a lot of like, are you still, why are you still dealing with that from 30 years ago? That doesn't, you should be over that by now. You need to let it go, you know, and people do the same thing to themselves and their people in their lives do the same thing to them about recovering from grief or healing grief that the process is supposed to be done quickly and, you know, maybe a month max. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so much of what I kind of say is reframing the situation. Okay. So you were married for 60 years and three months has passed. So do you think it's fair that, you know, you should be well adjusted by now if you were together for that amount of time? So just, you know, again, offering a gentle way to allow people to really struggle with this grief. Yeah. And and to recognize and challenge our cultural messages that we're getting. I think the bottom line is that most people in our culture have a very hard time with intense, strong emotions. Mm -hmm. And so when their friend or their family member is fragile and falls into tears, and so they try to fix it by saying, you need to get better. How about this? Try this. What about this? And give advice like that. But I wish I wished we lived in a culture where difficult emotions were as acceptable and as honored as positive emotions. Me too. In our culture, everybody thinks if you're not happy, then something's wrong, you know, and it's like, yes, you may be feeling sad. So in a way, there's something that isn't how you want it to be. But that doesn't mean that those feelings are wrong. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Another thing that you said that resonated deeply with me is that people didn't always have such perfect relationships, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we tend to sort of like put someone who passes away on a pedestal too. So, yes. you know, that's like, oh, you can't say anything negative about that person because they passed away. But, you know, again, with since so many of my clients have complex trauma, oftentimes the grief that they have They may have had a negative relationship with someone like, let's say, an abusive parent. Mm -hmm. And so when the person dies, the the person will think, you know, I should be glad. Why do I feel all of these mixed feelings or, Mm -hmm. you know, and so there's a lot of like judging how one reacts as not being correct. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm, exactly. And also to help clients understand attachment, that we can be in, attached to people who are imperfect, that hurt us, but they're still our closest, you know, family member or somebody that we turn to for safety that gives us some security just because they're there. And then suddenly they're gone. It is very complicated. It is. And um, a lot of like, there's a um, I wish I was like your other speakers and could cite um, authors and things like that, but I don't, <laughs> don't have worry a great about memory. it. <laughs> I'm not good at that either. <laughs> yeah, but I, I read a book on caregiving, and it was it was about caregiving as a rite of passage. And they did a study on grieving um, caregivers after the death of the patient, and the number one emotion that was present in those caregivers was not sadness. It wasn't grief as we traditionally think of it, but it was relief. Mm -hmm. And sometimes my clients need permission to feel relief that 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 person has died. 
either because the suffering just couldn't go on as a person declined, but also relief for the caregiver that their 24-7 sort of exhaustion is over. Yeah. And, you know, and I think about the stress of caregiving. I think one of the things about the stress of caregiving, especially when, you know, someone has continued hospitalizations or, you know, a lot of crises, events that happen along the way Mm -hmm. um, in the caregiving, you know, that it's like, I think one of the things that makes the stress, this is just my opinion based on experience that one of the things that makes the stress of caregiving so difficult is that the person is anticipating, is this it? Is this it? Is this it? You know, and, and I have to keep this person alive and we're going to try this. We're going to try that. We're going to try this. And it's like, they never get to let their guard down at all. You know, so just the amount of tension that they would hold just from that constantly, you know, and for the other person, the person who's sick, they're going through it. So, of course, it's horrible for them. But for the caregiver, they're like a step removed. They're not going through it. They're just witnessing it all and feeling responsible for it all. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that makes it so hard and why many caregivers have symptoms that would meet the PTSD criteria. Exactly. Exactly. Grief counseling is often um, traumatic grief. And, and yes, especially in the acute phase of grief, the, there are, are many traumatic symptoms and also, you know, the physiological symptoms after death of loved one is predominantly fatigue, just absolute exhaustion. Most of my clients are just exhausted and it's, it's, likely a result of the loss, but also likely a result of just what you're describing. Months and months, if not years of, of hypervigilance yeah. and uh, 24-hour kind of alertness about what's going to happen next. Yeah. I do a lot of work and I know a lot of therapists do uh, on guilt, a guilt around, um, did I do enough? Or maybe we should have gone to the doctor earlier or um, I went and I went as a grieving person, I went to my friend's party and I feel terrible because I had a good time and I shouldn't be having a good time because it somehow dishonors the person who died. So um, it's really the, the grieving person's process to make peace with that or sort of find a way to talk to themselves and recognize that to live again, it's okay to have positive emotion while they're grieving at the same time. You know, some people have a myth that like, I'm going to grieve first and then I'm going to go back to work or I'm going to go, you know, on that trip. I'm going to grieve first. But the truth is like, we have to both grieve and live our lives at the same time because, you know, grief takes that much time. We usually don't have the luxury of kind of standing still for, you know, for however long it takes but we need to take turns. We can't do it all. We need to take turns focusing on our grief and, and going to counseling and groups and writing in a journal or just being still and, and being reflective about our grief and then taking a break from it by living our lives and going out with friends. I think a lot of people need permission to do that. I've seen people have a lot of guilt about resuming their normal Mm -hmm. lives after someone dies who they love. Like, you know, if a spouse dies and the, the person who the widow or widower begins to date, Mm -hmm. 
There's a lot of guilt about, am I allowed to do this? Is it wrong? Does it mean I didn't love them? Right, right. And really guiding them through those thoughts and, and again, sort of using the principles of self-compassion. If you had a friend who was grieving a loss and, and you, you saw that they were dating again, how would you feel about what they're doing? You know, just seeing, just giving yourself some distance and recognizing that it would be perfectly fine, that that person has a right to be happy and to not be lonely. I do want to mention that one of the tasks of grief counseling is really to guide people through their own process. And if there are concerns, to highlight them and pursue further treatment. So one of the things I do is complicated grief treatment, which is developed by Dr. Catherine Shear at Columbia. And um, it's an evidence-based treatment, 16-week treatment program that really guides people through some of the greatest barriers in, in those who are stuck in their grief. So one of the most important aspects. I said the most important word for grief was allow, but I'm going to say another word. The other word is accept. Mm. To accept that the person has one of the tasks that William Warden has um, put out and Alan Mulfelt and um, to accept and not just to accept intellectually, because most people say, yeah, yeah, I've accepted it. Yeah, I saw them take their last breath. But it's not just that. It's fully emotionally, spiritually, intrinsically accepting that that person is gone, they're not coming back, and I am still here. Now what? And really recognizing the the now what? What are the choices I have? Recognizing the importance of the past and the role of memories in helping us connect to the person, but also, you know, now what? How are you going to live your life with that person no longer here? Um, How are you going to establish new attachments? We all need attachments. That's the basis of being human. Um, And a lot of the work I do in grief counseling is around um, social support. And um, it's really sad for me when there's a number of people out there that have no one with whom they are intimate. What I mean by intimate is no one they can confide in. You know, today I'm feeling this way. Today, I'm having a hard day. And that's why I think support groups are so important in the grief process, because that's a safe place where people can come and, and really tell it like it is. But that, again, we, we don't have a culture where people always are there on emo- an emotional level. And I'm, I, again, coming back to my own personal experience, this is what makes me grateful for the life I've lived because I have always had a, a cystic fibrosis community and the transplant community is the same. So again, it's something I hold inside of myself. I don't reveal this, but to have a place of belonging, I preface this because I, I am very active in the cystic fibrosis and transplant community. To have a place of belonging is such a basic human need. And when we don't have that and we experience a significant loss, we can feel completely lost, unmoored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, honestly, you know, I would say one of the unintended positive consequences of being a child with CF is that you had a... A community, you know, yeah, who was right. who could relate to what you were going through, and you know, that's somehow in our culture that's not as common in in everyday life to have 
you know, communities that are built on shared emotional experiences, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Communities around like that we all play soccer or that we, you know, that we all go to, you know, this school, but the emotional part is often not there. Yeah. And luckily, you know, Al-Anon and AA have Mm -hmm. really opened up the self-help movement and that, that, there are places people can turn to if they identify with a certain um, group. And I think, again, coming to grief and the word acceptance, I think that also applies to people who are living with illness, that we need to accept that this is our life and this is what we have and we, we're going to live with this disease and we are going to be different. The reality that this is my life. Um, And only after doing that could I feel like, okay, so I have cystic fibrosis. It's not going to go away. It's really um, messing up a lot of my life wishes, but I belong to this group because everyone else has CF. Because I've also witnessed so many kids and teens and adults who don't want to identify. They don't want to accept that they have this disease. Um, So they push it away and resist and Unfortunately, that often is accompanied with noncompliance and and then worsening health. So it's a real struggle. It can cost your life to to on the path of acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. I know I'm kind of jumping all over the place here, but this is what conversation is about. Yeah, no, I I value so much all the things that you've shared. I wish we had more time to talk today because you know, everything that you're talking about is just so important and perhaps we'll be able to talk again and go into more depth. But I think for now, this was a really helpful conversation. And I think like if I were listening and probably when I do listen back, I'll be saying, oh yeah, like, (laughs) because, you know, the way you presented the information was very thought-provoking, and I love the perspective that you bring. So, But I just want to say one more thing about grief counseling and, and why it's so rich, is that grief is often like a spotlight. It will highlight family dysfunction. It will highlight devastating low self-esteem. Because of the death of the loved one, we can recognize all the other mental health challenges somebody is, is um, undergoing. And so part of my role is um, supporting a person through their grief process, but also recognizing the symptoms, the underlying um, challenges, and and maybe even the unhealthy or maladaptive patterns that they've mm-hmm. lived with all their life. And grief offers them an opportunity to challenge that or get additional support for their depression or be recognized as having trauma. And so it opens up um, new areas in a person's life to really help them live the best possible life they can that may not have been possible if that. So this is why I, I love my work is that it's sort of it's not just about grief. It's about all of the issues that our clients who walk through the door um, present to us and really exploring how those issues impact their grief and how their grief impacts their their other issues as well. Thank you for sharing that. I really, I'm glad that you added that in because yeah, that's beautiful. That's true. And somehow the grief is what presents the opportunity for the person to get the help that they also needed before this happened. Yes, Yes, exactly. 
Well, thank you for having me and thank you for having a, se a segment on grief and for being so interested and open to my personal story. It's always um, very meaningful to share. And um, thank you, Laura. No, I'm, I'm very grateful that you were my guest today. And I will let you know, too, I think I might have told you this when we first corresponded about setting this up, that people have been asking me to have guests on to talk about grief. So this is something that the audience has been wanting to hear more about. So I'm very grateful that you took your time to share your perspective today. And all the resources that you mentioned, I will put links to in the show notes. But before we completely wrap up, is there any Anything you want to tell our audience about where they can find you or I know, you know, the work you're doing, but there is something else that you have created. I know that you didn't mention. Would you like to tell people about that? Yes, thank you. I, I am sort of intrinsically humble. And so my <laughs> I, I'm a terrible marketer. I'm a terrible marketer. But what I did do is write a book, a memoir um, called The Power of Two, along with my twin sister. And it really was meant to be a document of our love for each other. I'm so grateful I wrote that book because it is a lasting legacy of what we had together. And um, that book became a movie. It's called The Power of Two also a documentary film um, highlighting our work in Japan, um, advocating for organ donation. And um, my mother's Japanese, by the way. Mm. And so those two experiences allowed me to tell my story and really, again, gain personal insight on this path and help me basically kind of come to terms with it so that I have the clarity and the focus to really work with other people and their issues. It kind of helped me take care of my own stuff. Right. And that's, um, I had, I really transformed by writing the book. It helped me gain perspective. It helped me grieve the people who died. It really helped me organize my life and see not just the negative challenges, but also the positive and gain some new insight about this path. And so that's one of the reasons, I, if you don't mind me mentioning, at um, my hospice, I also lead writing through loss groups and oh. really um, advocate, advocate um, as you do, uh, for people to write out their stories and write out their relationship, to tell the story of the love that they had for this person and the loss, what it means now for themselves, what their grief is like. And these writing through loss groups have been successful here at Mission Hospice. And if anybody has interest in those, they're welcome to contact me as well. The book and the film are available on my website, thepowerof2movie.com. And if anybody's interested in further grief information, I am uh, working at Mission Hospice, and our website is missionhospice.org. And our phone number is 650-554-1000. And I do do um, consultations and grief education presentations, and I could talk a lot more I could probably do another session on just sort of the process of grief uh, work in more depth, but um, I'm happy to share and uh, and spread the knowledge if people are interested. Well, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> so they can find your book and <laughs> the you film. <laughs> they can yes. find the book and the film on thepowerof2movie.com. It feels like it's just like that, what you said when you were little, like, what am I going to do with this life? And then you've made 
you know, meaningful contribution day to day in your work. And then something that you that that will always be there, the book and the film, you know, is there's so much potential for those and all the the training and teaching that you're doing to help so many more people help so many more people. So thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Laura, for having me. Thank you for being a wonderful interviewer (laughs) and guiding the session so nicely to help include so many different themes and topics. I really, that was very helpful. Wonderful. Well, I'll thank you again for being my guest today. And I hope we may resume, you know, come back and have another conversation about maybe the process of grief therapy work and, Cause you know, we barely had a chance to touch on that, but I would love to bring that if you, if you have time in your schedule to, to do it. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Isabel Stenzel Burns. I really was moved by everything she shared, both her own personal experience with chronic illness, terminal chronic illness and with grief and loss and how she works with her clients. I am going to ask Isabel to come back and talk with us more about the process of grief therapy specifically because I know so many of you as therapists who listen are curious about what you need to know about grief therapy. And I have had, as I mentioned in the episode, so many people ask me, to cover this topic on Therapy Chat. I also feel that this conversation today is very important. It's an important part of, if you are a therapist who's working with people who have grief, it's really important to hear from someone who's experienced that and is knowledgeable about it, not just about the techniques and the the practice of grief therapy, but kind of those existential questions and almost that spiritual aspect of death and dying and grief that is really, you know, you can't separate from the process of the therapy. So I'd love to know what you thought about this episode. Please feel free to get in touch with me. You can use the speak pipe button on the website, therapychatpodcast.com. You can leave me a recorded message. I'll be happy to hear what you have to say. Sometimes I respond. And I always value what you share. I love knowing how the information on Therapy Chat lands for you. As always, thank you for listening. I appreciate all of your support. Appreciate you telling other people about Therapy Chat, subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews on your favorite podcasting platform. If you like listening or watching on YouTube, please feel free to comment there. I definitely I'm not able to respond to every comment, but I value hearing what you have to say. Thanks so much. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com.
Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Just another reminder that if you'd like to become a member of Therapy Chat, supporting the podcast while receiving fun member perks and being able to communicate with me one-on-one, go to patreon.com slash therapy chat. If every subscriber donated just $1 per month, therapy chat would be able to keep going strong indefinitely. Thanks so much for your support. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.